Welcome to the Axial Podcast. Axial is an early-stage investment firm based in San Francisco. We partner with great founders and inventors investing in early-stage life science companies often when they are no more than an idea. Axial is fanatical about helping the rare inventor who is compelled to build their own enduring business. Hey, Diego, how are you? Hey, good, Josh. How are you? Doing pretty well. Okay, housekeeping. First, so I can protect you, uh, if you can click on my profile and make me a moderator. All right, there you go. Cool, okay. Now we can just have a great, fun conversation. How's your day been? You... Good, everything's going well. How about you? Doing pretty busy, to be honest. It's kind of end of the year uh, race to like get paperwork done and deals and stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, really excited to talk. I mean, it's been a long time since you caught up and... To be honest, Diego, you're like one of the most generous people I've met in, in this whole business. So uh, in terms of being helpful and giving advice, so I'm uh, just really excited to just talk about your career and what you do at Endpoint. Uh, but let me, let me uh, set the stage and then we can kind of get into it. Um, so, so everyone, really excited to uh, have Diego Ray here, the co-founder and CSO of Endpoint Health, as well as Gene Weave and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, his career, from being an engineer to building really great companies uh, to being part of and helping other startups and, and then also then spend a lot of time talking about uh, the business of drug development, especially for infectious disease because Endpoint has such a unique business model and that's what makes me really excited to see you, know, see you execute. Uh, but Diego, do you want to uh, do a quick introduction and we can go from there? Sure, sounds good. Yeah, and, and thanks, Josh. Uh, and likewise, uh, feel the same way about you, about your generosity to the community, uh, always out there being helpful. So th thanks for that comment. Uh, and by the way, congrats on the recent recognition uh, with, with, with Forbes. It's pretty awesome. I really appreciate it. I mean, I got a lot of help, too. Does you know that? <laughs> I got a lot of my friends helped me. I got Alec Nielsen, Jason Kelly, a few other folks. And Nibia really helped me. So uh, shout out to them for the help. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, good. Yeah, so quick intro. Uh, so Diego Ray, I'm the, uh, currently Chief Scientific Officer at Endpoint Health, uh, heading up research activities at Endpoint that deal with data science, bioinformatics, uh, in vitro diagnostics, and um, early therapeutic uh, pipeline work. And uh, prior to Endpoint, co-founded a company called GeneWeave Biosciences in the infectious disease diagnostic space. I think, uh, Josh, maybe we'll get into that in a little bit. And uh, um, the company was acquired by Roche in 2015. I uh, joined Roche as head of research for the GeneWeave division. Uh, we were part of Roche Molecular Systems. Uh, and then I, I stuck around for two and a half years at Roche. Uh, phenomenal experience there, great colleagues. And, uh, but then stepped off and joined uh, Y Combinator as their first life sciences visiting partner. Uh, and then uh, did that for about a year. The visiting partner role is come and be a partner until you figure out your next thing. Uh, and so we figured out the next thing, which was Endpoint Health. And there we actually got the GeneWeave uh, band back together, so to speak. Same co-founders from GeneWeave to start uh, Endpoint. Awesome. Well, I think usually it's really useful always to kind of understand people's like kind of origin stories and how they got interested in biology. And let's learn more about how you got into biology, especially from an engineering background. You know, I think you went to Santa Barbara for college, studied electrical engineering. And then went to Cornell for biomedical engineering. Uh, how did you just get into biology? What was kind of the initial? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, yeah, that's right. I studied uh, electrical engineering at UC Santa Barbara, uh, and then while I was there, 
during the summers, uh, my um, my last two years, uh, I uh, applied for what was then called the Research Experience for Undergrads program, REU program, might still be around. And um, uh, in these, this was the nanotech days. Uh, this is, you know, when uh, uh, a lot of grants were coming in for academic work when it uh, had to do with combining microfabrication from borrowed from the semiconductor industry uh, and uh, doing work to then would inter interface with biology, uh, I guess, simply put, because you could build small things at that scale. Uh, and, and so I ended up uh, at Cornell for while I was at Santa Barbara, but during the summer uh, for this RU program at the Cornell Nanofab facility. Uh, and uh, there they had this thing called the Nanobiotechnology Center, which is exactly what I mentioned earlier, kind of interface between microfabrication and, and uh, life sciences. And so I got a bit of exposure there uh, to that. I did that for two summers. Uh, and then uh, that's how I ended up at Cornell. Uh, when I applied to grad school, uh, I ended up applying to the biomedical engineering program uh, and uh, ended up uh, at Cornell, given that uh, exposure that I had there. And what, what drove me towards biology, uh, one was just kind of the curiosity of it, the interdisciplinary disciplinary nature uh, that's required in that space. Uh, in, uh, at Cornell, so my major was biomedical engineering. I had a couple of minors in applied engineering physics and biophysics. And uh, I knew it. So a big part of it was was just that, just that the fact that you you got to touch a lot of different areas um, when tackling uh, problems in the in the biology space. The other piece was kind of a a bit of an odd rationale, honestly. It was uh, as an engineer, as an electrical engineer, I felt that uh, I would uh, maybe uh, end up working on a subcomponent of a subcomponent, for example. Uh, in in a some sort of a system that may be far removed from whatever ended up interfacing with an end user, and you know that's not uh, of course always true, but uh, that was kind of the, the thought process that was going through my mind. And uh, given that I had an interest in life sciences, uh, the opposite scenario for me was well, if I studied medicine, there'd be nothing between me and the end user because it would be my my patient essentially, uh, and so it kind of uh, the a good in between felt like uh, biomedical engineering, where I would work on problems in biology that had to do with medicine, but um, I would still get to build things. Uh, so that, that's what drove me towards that major. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think just um, sometimes patients, you know, there's blood. I have friends who are like, who do MD, PhDs, and they're like, yeah, I like the PhD part better, because the MD, you have to kind of like, <laughs> you have to really interact with patients. They can get kind of... Uh, you're kind of nasty sometimes, and so <laughs> I have friends who don't like blood, so like oh, I can't be a doctor anymore, uh, and so things yeah. like that. Finding that right balance, and just kind of I think just finding what you can be the best at, and what you really what fits your personality. I think it kind of really shines through. And so you're at Cornell, you're doing your PhD in biomedical engineering. How did you meet your other two co-founders uh, for uh, for Gene Weave and Endpoint? It was Leonardo and Jason. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... You know, so it, well, actually, the almost the first day that I landed at Cornell, uh, I I pitched my advisor uh, an idea for what was a really crude version of what would later become Gene Weave, uh, and it was motivated by kind of thinking of 
unmet need. Uh, you know, the, what, what popped into my mind was, and, and, and I landed in, by the way, my lab was a uh, microbiology lab at, at Cornell. Uh, my, my thesis advisor was uh, in microbiology. And, and so uh, I was thinking bacteria and I was thinking bacterial detection. And the biggest problem I could think of in terms of unmet need was tuberculosis. You know, the areas that are endemic are very resource limited. Uh, and if you end up defining a kind of product requirements to try to tackle that problem from a bacterial detection point of view, you end up kind of designing this idealized solution in order to really tackle that problem uh, and uh, because of the, the needs in, in that environment. And so um, I had come up with some ideas for how I might be able to do this. And I was pitching these to my advisor and he essentially basically gave me the feedback of, you know, it's real cute that you're coming up with neat ideas, but I got this other project that's already funded that I need you to go and work on. Right? So, so that was kind of step one uh, was, uh, kind of that interaction. So I had this in the back of my mind, I ended up working on other work in the lab that had to do again, nanotech days. So I was working on quantum dots, carbon nanotubes, gold nanoparticles, et cetera, attaching biomolecules to them, using them for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes. Uh, but in the back of my mind was this idea for this bacterial detection concept. And along the way, uh, I met Leo, who was a lab mate of mine. Uh, he was studying, uh, Get a PhD in bio, in uh, actually sorry, in uh, microbiology, in the lab, uh, and so and I learned that he kind of had the same curiosity of, um, and you know, another motivation for for this idea was what would it take to actually go from lab bench to a product in someone's hand, uh, and what's the process of going through that? You know, once once you you turn this into a commercial product, then it could be actually useful to somebody, and so. Um, I learned that Leo had the same fundamental motivation. So we started hanging out and the two of us started going to the business school and just sitting in the back of classes and just kind of soaking it in to try to get a better idea about what this process was like on the commercial side. Uh, and along that, um, uh, that journey, we, we ended up um, interacting with a few business school professors and we basically were telling them, hey, do you know any business school students who are kind of entrepreneurially minded um, that uh, we can uh, talk to that might be interested in in uh, the sorts of things that we're interested in. And so um, uh, we were introduced to a few MBA students. One of them was Jason. And uh, we really kind of clicked from the beginning when we met Jason. There was some real chemistry between the three of us. And uh, and that's how we all got together initially. Uh, the This kind of crude idea uh, for bacterial detection ended up evolving into something closer to what we ended up getting off the ground for GeneWeave. Uh, and, uh, but that's, that's how we all initially met. That's really awesome. We'll, we'll get into GeneWeave. I think uh, in terms of your technology and kind of in the experience of building and selling it, one question I have, I, I did an interview by Beckman Coulter. So like I remember getting exposed to GeneWeave and hearing about it. And then when you guys got acquired, Beckman was really, you know, a surprise, you know, not a surprise, but they were very, uh, they felt, they felt, uh, they felt left out, but who who, uh, <laughs> who who felt who who named it Smarticles? Was it you or who who invented Smarticles? As the, as the yeah, no, 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 I was calling them internally non-replicative transduction particles because that's exactly what they were. You know, this so that maybe for background for folks in in the on the call. Uh, so the the technology that Gene we've developed was a transduction based system. We basically engineered 
viruses, but in this case, ones that would only infect bacteria, phages. Uh, and we engineer them to get rid of their new, uh, native genetic material and replace it with reporter DNA instead. And so you ended up with basically this chassis of, of a viral particle carrying only reporter DNA. And so uh, that's, you know, for that reason, we call it non-replicative transduction particles. They, tra they would, they would uh, deliver non-viral DNA, so transduction, and they couldn't replicate because you got rid of their genome. Uh, and, uh, and, and so NRTP for the acronym, but Smarticles, that came from actually uh, our then CEO, Steve Tablack, his daughter. Uh, so his daughter uh, came up with a name, uh, said, mentioned it to Steve at one point, he brought it back into the office. And, uh, you know, we had, we had an inter interesting debate at the time because it was, uh, uh, some people thought it was silly, some people thought it was a great name. Uh, and what, re what really made it stuck was that a lot of the key opinion leaders that we were working with, they loved it. And so we're like, hey, they like it. Uh, you know, these are the closest thing to, to end users because they were uh, lab directors at clinical microbiology labs. Um, we'll run with it. And so that's, uh, that's how Smarticles ended up uh, sticking. That's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, Gene, we've had a really breakthrough technology where you generate fluorescence with a biological process, not a chemical one. And so the, the, the premise, you have more rapid detection of like something like MRSA, and so it's very compelling. And so for GeneWeave, what was your experience just building a diagnosis company in infectious disease? You know, two really tough markets, uh, um, you know, then and kind of now. Um, kind of what was your experience uh, getting something that off the ground, you know, any types of like lessons you've learned that then probably inform Endpoint, uh, but what was kind of that experience from just going from zero for GeneWeave to then like a successful company and then we can talk about the Roche acquisition. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I guess one thing that really helped along the way is that the, the reason we were developing the technology for you know, GeneWeave the way we did was motivated from the very beginning and kind of throughout with the idea that uh, this approach would allow us to essentially skip sample prep. So uh, that, that was kind of the, the core thing was that you know, we're looking at different ways of uh, developing diagnostics and one of the key bottlenecks in terms of cost, complexity, and so on. And then adoption had to do with the sample preparation piece, especially when you're thinking of, if, uh, or you're talking about nucleic acid detection. You gotta extract the material from the organism, you know, maybe isolate the organism first from the specimen first, extract the, the genetic material from the organism, Amplify it or other means of, of detecting it. And that sample prep piece, uh, at least at the time, uh, translated toward into you know, a really complex system that ended up being expensive and complicated and took time to, to, to develop and, and, and to use to deploy. And so the, the motivation that we had from the very beginning was how do we get rid of sample prep? And that's how we landed at this phage-based approach because it allowed us to get this reporter material into an organism directly in a crude sample and have it produce a detectable signal. In this case, it was luminescence. And in that way, uh, it, ended up, it ended up allowing us to make a test that was literally just a tube where you would add a sample and a reagent, and that was it. And so um, I, I think that the kind of sticking to that uh, throughout really helped was one of the, I guess, lessons learned is that, you know, the, um, 
the at the end of the day uh designing into kind of everything we did the end result uh how this thing would get translated into practice uh and sticking to that concept uh was really helped us along the way um it, it definitely was you know diagnostics are tough uh it's a, it's a tough area in terms of revenue generation uh adoption etc uh infectious disease tough as well uh you know things are very different nowadays with covid of course uh but back then um you know when we first got started uh and 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 you know even to this day diagnostics are still pretty tough and what happened along the way was that and this is kind of another maybe lesson learned which was uh you know there was somewhat right place right time serendipity in that by the time the roche acquisition uh timing came about it was you know things had somewhat changed on the ground from this is an area that no one really cared about to you know drug resistant organisms are the biggest threat to modern medicine quote you know uh, the world health organization and so uh you know that that started getting folks to pay a lot more attention uh and and uh and it could chat about some more details of the of the roche um acquisition in a moment but uh it, i guess the lesson learned there was that um you know we we were sticking to to our guns in terms of what we thought was right the right uh product we were building but at the same time it, certain things were just serendipitous interesting that's it's a whole another conversation it last probably a few hours in terms of diagnostics but uh maybe we, then we can shift gears and so gene is really hyper focused on solving a specific problem and then build on the technology to do it how was that experience with roche you know in terms of um, you know, just anything you want to talk about in terms of how the deal came up, you know, how acquisition talks, uh, and then even post-acquisition of, of kind of integrating GeneWeave into just a very large organization. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the the acquisition. So, we, you know, we were talking to lots of parties at the time. Uh, Roche was one of them, and each party had a each company had a different motivation. I would say, and in Roche's case. Uh, there was, uh, and, and maybe this is common for folks who were developing nucleic acid-based uh, diagnostics, was that uh, when it came to clinical microbiology and bacterial detection, there was a, the, a nucleic acid approach, or at least a nucleic acid amplification-based approach, would only get you so far uh, in that uh, it, it would uh, essentially tell you you know, for example, it definitely could let, allow you to identify an organism, but when it came to whether the organism was going to be susceptible to an antibiotic or not, uh, you know, so in other words, when it came to guiding therapy, it it, it uh, fell short. And the reason is that you know you can me you can detect a drug resistance gene in an organism, and then you can deduce that if the organism is expressing this thing, then it may be not susceptible to the antibiotic. Um, and so in any case, you know, you, if you jump to that conclusion, what it's telling a clinician is what drug not to use, right? And what they really want to know is what drug do I use? What, what, what uh, antibiotic is the organism actually susceptible to? And so the, um, and the way to do that traditionally is with, you know, classic microbiological techniques that uh, require you to isolate an organism and grow it over several days often. And so what, what GeneWeave's technology allowed you to do is it was because it was a live cell assay uh, that did not require growth. 
uh, it allowed us to get that same information that you would from growing an organism, but directly from a specimen in a matter of hours. And it would tell you what the organism was actually responding to or was susceptible to. And so from Roche's point of view, this was uh, a complementary technology to what their bread and butter is, which is PCR. You know, Roche acquired the rights for in vitro diagnostics use uh, for PCR from Cetus. Uh, and that became uh, really Roche Diagnostics, uh, by and large, or Roche Molecular Diagnostics specifically. And, and so the GeneWeave technology was really complementary to that and really would allow Roche to round out the portfolio in clinical microbiology and um, have a, a means of getting information that you couldn't get with a nucleic acid amplification-based approach. So that, that's kind of a, why they were looking in the first place. Um, so I guess fa fast forward or going through the deal process and then integrating within the Roche organization. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll touch on a few different things and happy to dive into uh, some of them if, if, uh, if it's of interest. But so one of the things we did was we hired a bank. Uh, we, hired, we worked with Barclays and uh, to really organize the, uh, the potential acquisition process in talking like companies uh, with companies like Roche. And that really helped, uh, you know, the, you, you know, as an entrepreneur, uh, you do a deal like this, maybe once, <laughs> maybe a few times, and these banks are doing them all day, every day, and they have the direct relationships and just open communication channels with the key execs at the companies. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was really, really helpful to engage with a bank to manage the, the uh, acquisition process. Uh, so that was one thing. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, fast forward, uh, the acquisition happens. Uh, it was a great fit, again, because of this complementary nature. Uh, and, you know, going from 50, we were 50 people at GeneWeave at the time. And going from 50 to, you know, at the time it was, I think it was 96,000 people in the Roche organization. Uh, we were founded in, GeneWeave was founded in 2010. Roche was founded in 1896. Uh, so big, big difference between the two companies, obviously. Uh, but what was interesting was that Roche Diagnostics, uh, I think because it, it came, essentially there's that Cetus connection. And Cetus is really kind of a uh, legacy, you know, biotech company from the Silicon Valley, uh, really, the contemporary with Genentech and Biogen and so on. And, um, and so there was a little bit of that culture really there. Uh, and so it, it didn't feel like we were joining you know, a Swiss pharma company <laughs> when we joined, uh, when we joined Roche. Uh, and, and in fact, actually there's, there's f folks from the Cetus days still working on the bench at Roche Molecular in Pleasanton, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, the other piece I guess I could comment on is that, um, because of that complementary nature of the technology, uh, we were integrated into the Roche organization to varying degrees, at least in the early days. Uh, certain aspects of the company, like the quality system, et cetera, more integrated and others like the actual research, a little bit less integrated because, you know, they were bringing in something totally different than what they were used to doing. Uh, so we, we actually, we, Gene, we've had two buildings in Los Gatos. We kept those buildings for some time and, uh, you know, we were reporting into Pleasanton, but, um, but Gene, we was physically still located in Los Gatos for the first few years. That's really exciting and interesting. I did not know about the Cetus connection and how it's just like the culture persisted for so long. That's really awesome. Um, 
I would love to get a Cetus shirt because Cetus had a cool logo. It was like a big whale. <laughs> right. I, 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 if you ever find me a Cetus shirt, I'll buy it from you. I, 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 whatever, whatever price you want. I'm, I, I've been trying to find one of these Cetus shirts. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get the whole collection of the old school biotech companies in the Bay. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, maybe we can then kind of think talk about then that transition from Gene Weave and selling it to, selling it to Gene Weave to Roche for. I think over four hundred million dollars. So congrats on that, and then making that transition towards. Uh, uh, I think you had a a period in time where you know you like you said you were a, a, I think a visiting part. You were the bio partner at Y Combinator, and then and then that then set up Endpoint Health. Uh, kind of what was that experience? Kind of selling GeneWeave, working at Roche, kind of um, uh, in, doing the integration, and then making a transition period as an entrepreneur. Where you just sold one company, how did that set up Endpoint Health, and kind of what, what kind of things did you find helpful in that interim period that helped you get new ideas and meet new people? Yeah, so, so I guess in, in in between you 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 touched on it. Um, uh, uh, did did the uh, uh, the stint at YC, which was uh, amazing, amazing experience. Uh, not something I was planning on doing. I, was, I thought I was going to take a little bit of a break after Roche, uh, but then. Uh, uh, got to meet a few of the YC folks through uh, Jose uh, uh, on it from um, Shasky, who introduced me to some of the folks uh, at Y Combinator. Uh, I met Jose through through Dylan uh, Morris, uh, folks who know him. Uh, you know, the guy's good at, at connecting folks, and uh, and, and so uh, chatted with Jose, and then chatted with some of the YC folks, and I came in as the first life sciences visiting partner, uh, YC. Uh, they already had other uh, part-time partners and, and other uh, what they call experts with life sciences experience already working there. And by the time I joined, there was already 140 life sciences companies at YC. I didn't know what to expect going in whatsoever. I actually didn't know much about YC other than, you know, what I, what I knew, uh, in, you know, by, in the periphery. And, and so my impression prior to really seeing what was going on uh, at YC was that it was all tech. Right, uh, and and in really no no life sciences and and when I got there that was totally wrong. They were already well under their way underway um, in uh, with with several life sciences companies. So great critical mass of founders already uh, building great companies in the life sciences space and tools, diagnostics, therapeutics, uh, uh, devices, etc. Actually. And, and then the other misconception that I had was that even if they had life sciences companies, it's probably all healthcare IT. And it turned out that actually a minority of the life science of the healthcare companies were were IT based. Most of them were hard tech, in one form or the other. Uh, and so, um, so that was a really great experience. Um, the you know the partnership of YC also was phenomenal, uh, diverse in every sense of the word, uh, from a, a background experience, et cetera. A great culture, I guess, is the best way to put it. Like the YC was the the type of company that I'd want to join just because of its, its culture in terms of the partnership. Uh, so that was that was all that was all really great. And um, the um, there it got to kind of you know take the 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 gene weave uh, lenses off. You know, cause after working on one thing uh, in you know completely focused and intently for so long, uh, it, it uh, I really kind of needed that you know, broadening horizon and kind of seeing a lot more things. I got to learn a lot uh, about, uh, obviously, uh, things outside of diagnostics, which was the main focus 
at Dreamweave. Um, and so uh, it was a really, really great time. Uh, at that time, also, um, Jason had, had since left uh, Roche. He left about a year before I did, actually. Uh, be, yeah, before I did. And and so he, uh, so actually, he was busy. Uh, he had a, a, him and his wife had their first daughter. Uh, and so uh, I joked that uh, we left Jason in the room alone too long. Uh, and he started cooking up some ideas, and uh, uh, which was the genesis of what we ended up doing uh, at Endpoint that we can talk about more in a moment. Uh, and then Leo had left actually after after I did, uh, and he joined IndieBio, so had a similar experience to what I did at YC, but uh, but at IndieBio uh, in a similar sort of role there. And uh, so I guess going into uh, going into uh, Endpoint. So one of the things we saw while at Roche was that, you know, while we were at Roche, uh, they ended up uh, partnering with and then acquiring Foundation Medicine, Flatiron Health. Uh, they had the diagnostics piece. Roche was uh, creating a new department focused on data. Uh, and of, of course, there's Genentech and Roche Pharma. And so we kind of see, saw all of these elements of data, diagnostics, and therapeutics and but since we had stepped off, uh, one of the things we we were asking ourselves was, you know, what if what if you started Roche today, what what would it look like, uh, and you know, would you build it differently? Would it end up looking differently? And, and of course, the answer was yes. You know, the in 1896 there wasn't machine learning and low cost sequencing and et cetera, et cetera, and all the enabling technologies. Uh, and so you know, the if the idea was that. If you have, you know, if you start from a point of view of all these new enabling technologies, uh, and and you want to build a company like Roche that has all, you know, diagnostics data and therapeutics all under one roof, how would you build this? So that was the very kind of beginnings of how we started thinking about endpoint health, and we really landed on uh, unmet clinical needs that really required that integrated solution that you you know. It wasn't. It didn't totally make sense to uh, start with a molecule and then and then figure out you know which patients it, it might help. Instead, we were thinking, well, why don't we start with patient data, uh, understand the clinical needs uh, initially, and then back into you know if we stay agnostic to the molecule or the modality, then back into what is the right therapeutic solution for these patients. And, and one of the important things that came out of this was that sometimes it wasn't a pharmaceutical solution. Sometimes it actually was avoiding a pharmaceutical solution, withholding a certain therapy from a patient if they're not going to respond or they're going to have an adverse response. Uh, and in other cases, uh, it, it was ruling in an intervention, but again, not pharmaceutical in nature. Uh, you know, it could be optimizing supportive care like ventilator settings for a patient with a respiratory issue. Uh, but of course, it also it did include definitely uh, pharmaceutical interventions. And, and then the, the idea there was, well, who really needs the therapy? Who's actually going to respond? Who's not going to respond? Who might have an adverse response? And how do we use data and diagnostics to develop the therapies from the very beginning with the, the data and the diagnostics integrated into the plan, into the development plan? And then at the end of the day, have a way of guiding these interventions in a clinical setting to, to get the therapy to the, to the right patients and avoid, uh, you know, 
interventions and therapies that a patient might not need or might be harmed by. It's really exciting. I mean, that's a really compelling pitch, isn't it? Just to build the next Roche. <laughs> that's a great, I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> you know what I mean? What a pitch. Uh, and so within that, uh, kind of where you're coming from is, you know, using both drugs and diagnostics and kind of merging them together uh, from day one. Uh, can you talk more about how Endpoint thinks about its platform? Uh, you have this concept of precision-first therapeutics and kind of a concept of like, you know, every patient you interact with, you want to make sure they're a high responder. And so kind of how does Endpoint, what kind of technology do you need to build out? Uh, and, and you also said you need to start, maybe you have to start differently. You have to start at the biomarkers, you have to start the patient data. But what kind of, uh, what are the prerequisites to actually design, you know, precision, precision first? Yeah, I provide a couple of examples. Uh, so the, uh, it, it, again, it kind of with this idea of modality agnostic and then backing into the therapy, we also started off with, you know, omics agnostic, I guess you could say, uh, data agnostic, and then figuring out, well, what, what's the right data that we need in, for, the, for the specific uh, needs that we're trying to address? And so uh, two specific examples of where we landed, you know, at the end of the day, you do end up with a very specific uh, technological approach that is uh, you know, best suited for, for the application. And so uh, I can describe a sepsis example and an acute respiratory distress syndrome example and touch on some of the chronic inflammatory disease work uh, that we're looking into as well. So on the sepsis side, uh, actually, maybe I'll start off with uh, the acute respiratory distress, distress syndrome side. So the ARDS side, and this is, by the way, all pre-pandemic, right? That we, we, we went down this, uh, this avenue. Um, we started in critical care uh, for a few different reasons. One was that that's where we came from. You know, these are the sorts of patients we were already working with at GeneWeave. We understood those patients. We understood the needs. We understood the, the, the needs of the, uh, the providers, you know, how, how you would implement technology and, and guide therapy and that sort of a setting. We understood how those markets worked as well, how the payment worked and so on. So, uh, you know, we, we, had a, we had a good background in that space to, to make it obvious, an obvious space for us to look into. The other piece was that it was a glaring, glaring unmet clinical need. That there, you know, for example, in sepsis and uh, ARDS, there's essentially no therapies approved, right? There's, there's supportive care. There's antibiotics, fluids, antibiotics to deal with the infection that causes sepsis, which, you know, you really which should categorize as a dysregulated immune response due to the infection. So the antibiotics deal with the with the actual insult, the the bacterial infection, and then the supportive the the interventions available are all supportive. They're all uh, fluids, pressors, et cetera, keeping blood pressure up so you get oxygen to your vital organs, but not anything to deal with the host response that are usually uh, you know need to be immune modulatory agents or uh, dealing with coagulation, for example, and so. Uh, Huge unmet need, given that that you know very high mortality rates, no therapies approved. Uh, as a consequence, really not much of a therapeutics market in the space. So just a, a different topic we can chat about. Uh, and so uh, that was another reason why focus in critical care. So in acute respiratory distress syndrome, what we found is working with only electronic health record data, we're, we were able to uh, use that data and an unsupervised clustering approach with that data to look for patterns in these clinical variables that would allow us to cluster patients into different groups that seem to behave differently 
based on that underlying data. And this, the, con the concept of you know, unsupervised clustering, um, the idea there really is uh, ignoring any clinical features, outcomes, um, treatment information, biological features, and just looking at the data in and of itself to essentially try to uncover fundamental biology or, or, or uh, try to uh, tease apart fundamental clinical phenotypes if they're there and not bias the uh, technique to making a purpose-built test for a specific intervention, right? It's, it's first look to see, are there different patients fundamentally? And then see, well, what, what are their differences? Uh, and do they respond differently to different therapies? And so uh, we've done that with, a, with only electronic health record data for ARDS can identify a, what you, you could call a hyper and a hypo inflamed group. Uh, if you measure their uh, plasma pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are not part of the modeling, uh, we just look at those after the fact, after we cluster these patients using only the clinical features, you see that one has upregulation of these uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines and the other one downregulation. One is more severe with a higher mortality rate than the other. And then we also see that they have, uh, they respond differently to different therapies, the, these two clusters. Uh, and the, and the, the therapies, or I guess I should say more broadly, the interventions uh, that we see differences in are things like uh, uh, ventilator settings for mechanically ventilated patients, uh, feeding strategies when you're applying nutrition to these patients, um, and, and uh, th things like this. We, we actually have a, a paper just accepted uh, a, that's going to be published in a few, day, in a few weeks uh, in uh, BNJ Open. Uh, we, we did a preprint of that already, and we have uh, four abstracts on this work being presented at the Society for Critical Care Medicine Conference in early February in Puerto Rico, uh, early next year. Uh, so if anybody wants to take a look at those, we'll, we'll be presenting those there. In um, sepsis, we've actually worked instead with, or maybe not only with electronic health record data, but also gene expression data. And here, um, the reason for this is that we found that um, there really is a need for uh, therapeutic intervention that is pharmaceutical in nature. So actually using a molecule to modulate, in this case, host response in these patients. And that the electronic health record data didn't seem to be enough to really give us the insights we needed about what molecules might help these patients. And instead we used gene expression data. So there we're working with uh, uh, full transcriptomic data sets that we generate through RNA-seq from uh, peripheral whole blood from patients. We then use same fundamental approach, you know, unsupervised clustering to uncover uh, uh, hopefully un underlying fundamental biology in these patients. And we can see in those patients uh, that they're, they, you know, within a sepsis cohort uh, that there, there is definitely uh, different clusters of patients that each have differences, very, uh, very stark differences in biological characteristics in terms of their innate versus adaptive immune response, whether they're immune active versus immunosuppressed, and whether they're exhibiting a coagulation disorder or not. And so once we saw that, it was kind of obvious that, well, that, you know, why hasn't anything worked in the past? If, you know, as an example, if you give a patient that if you give a sepsis a group, a group of sepsis patients an anticoagulant 
And, you know, it, it really is a, only a subset of these patients that are exhibiting the coagulation disorder. Uh, then those patients may, in fact, benefit from the anticoagulant, but you might cause bleeding in the other ones that don't need it. Uh, and so it's a, it's a good example for, well, why hasn't anticoagulation approaches worked in the past in these patients? And so the, that's some of the initial um, insights that we started seeing. So uh, maybe I'll pause there and answer any questions, but uh, I could talk about, well, how do we use that to actually develop the therapies? Um, exactly. I think what you're describing is a pretty revolutionary approach, especially for infectious disease, but then immunological disease in general is just like measuring our host response instead of just trying to like diagnose the an infection. It's, it's a little, you know, and so like maybe Gene Weave was trying to find the, the, the measure of the exact bacterial bacteria causing the infection, whereas maybe a host-based response kind of allows you to infer whether you have an infection or not. One question on that point though is like, you know, you describe this whole workflow to, you know, Taken EHR data and maybe gene expression data for sepsis patients. Why didn't why 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 weren't other companies doing this, or or why why is it kind of easier to do this now? Is it just because there's cheaper sequencing, or is there some sort of other unique market timing insight you have here for Endpoint that like allowed you to kind of be, you know, kind of a pioneer for this type? Of yeah. So so I think uh, so a couple of things. Um, uh, one, one important piece is that, so we, we definitely are complementary to things that, for example, detect sepsis or determine sepsis severity or, or uh, develop prognostics. We don't do that sort of work. We, we, we come in essentially after that, uh, where, you know, you got a sepsis patient by one way or another, you've recognized that. Now, now what do I do? What therapy do I give this patient to address the uh, the underlying issue caused by the by sepsis right so just wanted to highlight that that difference in in kind of a, what we do i think it ties to your your question which is that um i guess the, there maybe it's a combination of things the, the, way, the way i see it is a combination of things one is that yeah there's definitely uh, enabling things that have happened more recently that weren't available previously that kind of make it you know why now one of them is that um there's a lot of data uh, out there that's available to get started. So uh, a lot of folks who do work in this space, you start with publicly available gene expression data. Uh, it, it's a great resource. It's, uh, it's data that's maybe not the best data in terms of quality, but it's a great starting point for proving a concept, concept gaining some insights and, and coming up with hypotheses that then you can validate in prospective studies. And that's a consequence of NIH funding uh, initially, microchip or, or uh, gene expression chip-based uh, uh, work, uh, and uh, and anybody who got NIH funding needed to eventually make this data publicly available. So you go to the Gene Expression Omnibus or Array Express for some of the European data, and there's a you know rich body of data out there that anybody can access uh, to to start doing some work in this space. So that's that's something that. That it you know has become more available. Uh, the other piece is making sense of that data, of course. So machine learning techniques and so on that uh, just continuously advance and become more and more uh, uh, usable. I guess I, I would say, or broadly usable from folks that aren't just complete experts in the space. You know, you you, you always need you you do need to be extremely careful with the like any other tool, in that you use the tool appropriately and don't trick yourself in what you think you're seeing with uh, something uh, like a machine learning technique, of course. 
but it but it is much more accessible i would say um to uh to research groups uh that's another thing that's that's uh newer uh, another one is uh you know even on the just actually building a diagnostic uh the un, until somewhat more recently the the uh patent uh landscape in the in vitro diagnostic space for developing a um a pcr based uh, uh test uh we're really limiting you know in, in terms of like who can do what with what technology uh that's become less of an issue as patents started expiring and so on uh you know in our case uh you know gene we were building our own diagnostic from scratch because it was this new technology the transduction particles uh and so we couldn't take that off the shelf obviously uh, but at endpoint, our in vitro diagnostics are RTQPCR based, uh, and that is an off the shelf technology, so to speak. We don't develop it ourselves. We partnered with a company that actually has a system already FDA authorized, and we develop an assay onto their system. We didn't need to reinvent that wheel. Uh, so that's another piece that's been very enabling. That was wasn't so much the case until somewhat recently. Uh, so so th there are definitely all those enabling things that. Were, are are more accessible now than they were uh, previously. The other piece I think I would say is that um, you know, if you're, we are building a therapeutics company, right? So we're we're developing the therapies, we're running the interventional trials, we're the, uh, taking the uh, the therapies through FDA approval, and we're also commercializing the therapies. Uh, and so, uh, in at least in the critical care space. This is not a mature therapeutics market, uh, given that it's uh, there's been so much uh, difficulty in getting uh, uh, having clinical success in this space, and so it's it's not an area that everyone's running towards. I would say, and so it's another piece that uh, you know, given our maybe unique background of where we came from with GeneWeave, uh, having a diagnostics background as well, uh, and, and uh, understanding these patients and and the markets around it. Uh, the it's an area that we just went into uh you know head first willingly <laughs> as to uh building a commercial therapeutics company in this space uh and, and so there's as I, I guess as a consequence there's just not much competition uh, uh at least not now uh in that space hopefully if we, if we show some signs of success that'll change and that'll be good for patients um but uh, i think that's another reason why you know why haven't folks been doing this um, uh, you know, why hasn't this done, been done before? Yeah, really interesting. I think um, it's always in biotech business model innovation takes 20 years or something for a lot of the foundational patents to expire and then it becomes <laughs> open source in some ways. So it's like, you know, every 20 years there's this proliferation of business models because some key IP is available. Um, maybe <laughs> we can shift gears and talk more around how Endpoint thinks about it's pipeline because you're a drug company. You're using data and diagnostics to make medicines for patients. And so how does Endpoint think about designing a pipeline, not only for critical illnesses, but the chronic illnesses? Yeah, so this is an area that um, I think uh, kind of the, the double-edged sword uh, that I was alluding to earlier, uh, an area with limited past success, but that doesn't mean that their folks haven't been trying, right? And so, uh, this this creates a bit of an opportunity in this space in that almost every therapeutic approach has been attempted 
in in, uh, in uh, a lot of these indications in the critical care space. And so there's a rich body of information and, and, and specific data available, even for very specific assets. And so the, the model that we're starting with in, with regards to pipeline is that we're, rather than using the insights we generate from gene expression data and so on uh, to develop new therapies, de novo, we're using that information to generate evidence of where might have some of these previously attempted therapeutic approaches actually have worked. So in other words, the fundamental hypothesis for the therapeutic approach was correct. It's just that you didn't get the therapy to the right patient. And so if we can, if you can connect those dots, we can identify specific assets that we then may be able to in license that have since been taken somewhere else. Usually they ended up being developed for another indication. Um, and, and so um, that's been our model initially. Uh, and so we're, we're working towards in-licensing therapies that we would then develop uh, for uh, the indications that we're interested in, in partnership with companies that are developing the therapies in, in other indications. Uh, what this will allow us to do is essentially go directly to clinical stage assets. The assets that we've identified to do this are all uh, clinical stage assets. And so that's where we're, we'll be starting. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, as a consequence, we would have gone from a century zero to clinical stage company. Uh, it's going to be in less than three years from, from, our, uh, from uh, when we started the company. Uh, which is another interesting conversation, probably won't have enough time to talk about here, about rapidly building a clinical development organization from scratch. But um, the, uh, th that's, that's how our first assets in our pipeline uh, are going to be derived in that way. Uh, moving forward, uh, we can, in fact, still use the, the insights that we generate from um, the, the, the fundamental platform to actually, um, uh, uh, to, to, to in fact actually gain insights into what might be no novel targets. So as you can imagine, if we were able to stratify patients uh, using gene expression data into different biologically defined groups, we can look at the differences between patients who are responding to therapies and the ones that are not, uh, gain insights into what pathways are up versus downregulated in one patient versus another, and what this essentially is, is a list of putative targets of, uh, you know, if we, if we have an understanding of what the clinical characteristics are between those two different groups, say one is actually doing better, the other one uh, has a higher severity and mortality rate, and we see what is lacking in that group in terms of gene expression, that, that gives us some insights into, well, what might be some ways to therapeutically intervene uh, that might uh, improve the outcomes in those patients. And so uh, we, we can use that information then to engage in de novo drug development. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, those are putative targets. We can then start with target validation studies uh, and go from there. And so looking ahead, uh, we, we are identifying areas uh, for these patients where is existing therapies may be suitable, and then other areas where there are uh, are uh, there aren't existing therapies that really are best suited based on what we're seeing in this data. And, and there we would seek to uh, actually develop new therapies potentially and likely in partnership 
with companies that do earlier uh, clinical development work. Uh, so just some preliminary thoughts about how the pipeline will be uh, built out. We haven't announced anything yet along these lines. Uh, so a bit of a preview. I think uh, uh, in coming new year and throughout 2022, we'll, we'll start uh, making some specific announcements about, about this topic. Awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, be able to in-license assets, especially as a startup, allows you to become a clinical stage company very quickly. Uh, Recursion did this, uh, ValueAge did this. And so as long as you have a platform, I think in-licensing works. And, but in-licensing in isolation might not work. Uh, it might be a little too, too uh, risky. And so when you think about uh, making that transition from in-licensing to developing your own therapeutics or internally generate therapeutics, What's been the core metrics of the platform that, um, in terms of like, is it data, in terms of like the number of patients you can sequence or number of EHRs you can aggregate? Is it kind of the quality of that data in terms of like how annotated each patient is? But what's been kind of the, from the platform side, what's been kind of the, what's been kind of the, the, the jet fuel, the key metric that then is leading to better candidates uh, for, uh, all, uh, kind of the variety of diseases you're pursuing. Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, it's actually a little bit of everything. You do need enough patients to have sufficient power uh, to you know, have a degree of confidence that, that is really useful. Um, the quality of the data, absolutely critical, because if we don't have good response labels, then we don't know whether, for example, we don't know whether a patient is, you know, what happened to that patient when they got the intervention or not. If we're look, if we're like, if we're doing a retrospective analysis of a past trial, for example, that um, where patients are randomized to one therapy versus placebo, uh, you know, we, we do need that full data set, clinical data set, including outcomes. Uh, and so the quality of that data has got to be, it's got to be there. Uh, but I think maybe uh, to answer your question, the a, a key thing of, you know, how, how do we, uh, rank order specific assets to go after. One of the ways we do that is we look to see, is there a past randomized control trial where the asset has been tested? And there's, in addition to that, there's also direct evidence that if the trial was not successful, and typically in this, in this space, all the trials are equivocal, that, um, there is direct evidence that a subgroup of patients within that trial population actually did have a, uh, a benefit from the therapy. And do we understand you know, why that is? You know, is, there, is there a specific clinical phenotype? And, in, and in what we found in some cases is that there is that evidence, but it's only suitable for a retrospective analysis because the clinical features necessary to identify those patients are only available after you would have enrolled that patient. And so then the next question is, can, uh, can we, with our gene expression-based approach, prospectively identify that same population? And so, if we, uh, so that, that's been the, uh, maybe that's a good way of describing uh, a bit of a metric of, or, or maybe a bit of a methodology for you know, what assets to go after first. It's the ones that we think are most, mostly de-risked based on that level of evidence. And that probably connects to just drug development in general for infectious disease. Uh, <clears throat> how do you think about like solving some of the challenges past companies have faced? I think uh, antibiotics has been there's a big gap because of the 
you know, pricing and, 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 and the, the business model of antibiotics uh, for sepsis, sepsis and ARDS, maybe somewhat similar, but a little different. But for endpoint, as you develop these medicines and, and, and bring them to the clinic, how do you think about reinventing or, or trying to think about solving some past problems of just the business of drug development in infectious disease? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this space, unlike antibiotics, one of the one of the biggest challenges with antibiotics is that you're usually not developing a first line therapy. There's already an antibiotic that's uh, standard of care or in a guideline. And so uh, that poses a challenge when you're developing a new antibiotic because you may run into a situation where you can't have a true uh, placebo group. Uh, in a new trial for a new antibiotic, since you're you're comparing yourself to uh, existing therapies, in in a in the, in the sorts of indications that we're looking at and the sorts of therapies that we're looking at, there are no approved therapies. So actually, there there is the opportunity and is a bit of a first mover advantage to be the first approved therapies in the space. You then become the first line therapy. And then folks coming behind you actually run into the same problem that uh, you, you know anyone now runs into with antibiotics uh, in trying to develop a new therapy for this space. So um, I guess that's actually just a contrast that um, that difference. Uh, the I think that there is there is a uh, very broader topic. We won't be able to get into too much detail here. And the way that things are paid for in hospitals is different than uh, the ways that things are paid for outside of hospitals. And, and so you do need to have a business model that works within that framework and that budget that a hospital has. So there's some challenges there. Um, although for, for that, I would uh, maybe invite some of my colleagues, uh, such as uh, Kirsten Dietrich, who we recently recruited in from uh, uh, previously Takeda that's launched uh, Blockbuster Therapies in the space and is working out that strategy for us. She might be a good guest for you. Cool, yeah, I'll send you an email on that. I think, yeah, I totally agree. I think for antibiotics, show, and just in general, showing non-inferiority is really tough. <laughs> so yeah. I think if it, you know, if you can kind of just be first in line therapy for infectious disease, that's a great strategy. Uh, maybe to kind of tie it all together, um, you know, you're building endpoint and, and, and kind of over the next year or so, I think you've already kind of maybe touched upon this, kind of what are you most looking forward to? Yeah, so you know, it's uh, what I'm most looking forward to is that this is very different than what we did at GeneWeave. Um, you know, we're building a commercial therapeutics company from scratch um, that has been done too many times in the past, uh, and so it's it's a amazing learning opportunity. Um, you know, we're uh, for myself at least, it, it's the same strategy we took at GeneWeave, which was when we built GeneWeave, we you know we had never built a diagnostics company in the past. And so the trick was actually recruiting in the right folks who actually did know what they were doing and or could know in a much faster way than us, us uh, learning on the job. And so um, I'm really just looking forward to to building the company. I mean, we're about to embark in building out the clinical development team. We already got started with a commercial piece, as I mentioned, uh, and it's just going to be amazing to see how how this evolves. Um, the um, I think that's that's really the part I'm most excited about. That's really awesome. I think just endpoint is just a full manifestation of Gene Wee's vision and just taking it all the way to the 
all the way to the goal line or all the way to a touchdown, you know, not only doing diagnostics and aggregating patient data, but then making the treatments to actually help these patients. And then I think along the way, pioneer a whole new business model in infectious disease, to be honest. And so, and I think if you can have more business model innovation there, I think you've alluded to this too, you can have more competition, hopefully, and more people trying to do this. And then at the end of the day, more patients help get, you know, patients get help because of that. Yeah. Okay, really cool, Diego. I'll send you an email on the, on the other guests, but yeah, thanks for taking the time to talk, and I know you're really busy, so just keep doing great work, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Josh. Really great to be here. Awesome, and Diego. We'll have a great day. We'll talk soon. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Bye.